0: as we look at our passage today we know that we're still still lingering on that tuesday of the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. We call this the Passion Week of Jesus. We usually study this in the springtime, but because we're going through the gospel, here we are. And we know that it's just a few more days away from Jesus' betrayal, where he's going to be put on trial. He's tortured and, of course, crucified. And he's still in the temple at this time. He's been questioned four times by different groups of religious leaders and they're trying to trap him in order to do away with him. But we know that the scene starts to change as we open up verse 41. And I wanted to show you a little bit of a model of the temple because you don't always come across a good one. And this one actually is a really good one. When we think about where Jesus was in the temple, in the last week of his life, this is what the temple looked like. Now, the temple has a long history, and I don't have time to go through it, other than to say the first temple was built by Solomon, That temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. It was later sort of rebuilt in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. And then Herod, um, you know, prior to the first century, began to build this monstrosity where he doubled the size of the actual temple. And this is about 40 acres. If you can imagine, 40 acres of land is what this sits on. So when we consider that Jesus was in the court of the Gentiles, I think it's important for us to recognize what that actually looked like. And as you can tell over here, amen, over here, this section, the court of the Gentiles and some of this area right here, this section right here is considered the inner courts. And this is the holy place where the Holy of Holies is. And this is the, this is the courtyard where he's been teaching. This is the courtyard where Jesus turned over the tables and uh, and and dealt with the money changers. This is that area. I I don't know if you can see this, but look down here. You see this? So this this says football field, and it's a comparison to the inner temple, which is this on a smaller scale. That's a football field. And so if you can imagine, this is a football field right here. They say it's about three football fields uh, worth of space inside the court of the Gentiles. When Jesus turned over the tables, when he dealt with the money changers, About 100,000 people can fit into this courtyard. It wasn't a few people that saw this. Jesus didn't do it in a room this size. He did it in a massive area and thousands of people were struck with what in the world is this guy doing? And so we, we see that in verse 41, the scene changes from the court of uh, the court of the Gentiles into what's called the court of women. Now, I want to show you the next picture here, and this is a close up of what that looks like. So, in our verse today, what we're going to read is Jesus goes from here into this area, and the court of women does not mean where uh, this is where only women go. It means this is as far as women can go. And if that seems kind of offensive, I, I just want to tell you, not many people could actually enter into this area, anyways. And when they did, they had to have a specific purpose. Um, and especially the holy place. That's, that's for another time. But it's as far as women uh, could go and it was more cultural. You won't find it actually stipulated that way in the Bible. But anyways, it's just important for us to get kind of a grasp on where Jesus is so we understand um, what's going on. But we're going to read about where he goes into the court of women and that's where the temple treasury is. Verse 41 in our text today says this, and Jesus sat down opposite the treasury And began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had To live on. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I have to admit, there's a couple ways to look at this text or to deal with it today as we study it. And I would say two primary ways, and I think they're equally as important. First, we have to realize that this text about the widow who's putting in her, her mites into the temple treasury, we have to recognize that this is connected to a context. As Jesus moved from one courtyard to another, he had just made a comment. They go into this temple treasury area and they see a widow give her money. Now, let's read what just was said by Jesus in Mark 12, verse 38. As Jesus taught, he said, watch out for the teachers of the law or the scribes. They like to walk around in their flowing robes and they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at the bank. I mean, these guys are really something, aren't they? And they devour widows' houses. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished severely. My goodness, Jesus is saying the religious leaders are robbing people with their corrupt practices, even through what is happening at the temple. So right after he says they devour widows' houses, literally means they eat widows' houses. It's strange language. He's meaning that they exploit the helpless and they cheat widows out of their property. I mean, this is anti what is taught in the Old Testament, to protect widows, to protect the vulnerable. And so Jesus goes into the court of women right where the temple treasury is. And after that said, he tells his disciples to look at something that is happening where a widow is giving all that she has. So contextually, there's a few ways that we could draw some importance or meaning out of the text. The first is the religious leaders have no problem taking from the vulnerable and they're gonna be judged harshly for that. That's first that Jesus certainly would mean that. The second is the widow was a compelling example of what loving God practically looks like. Friends, do you remember we just studied the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? It's to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This widow is giving everything that she has into the temple treasury, but she's not doing it for the priest. She's doing it because of her devotion to God. And this is a picture of what loving God Practically looks like. Jesus wanted them to make that connection. And the third thought I had was the widow acted in a way that was overlooked by others, but it was certainly honored by God. She gave all that she had. And I want to look at this story through the lens of her sacrificial giving and not just the corrupt practices of the priests and those that are stewards of the temple because we've spent a lot of time really exposing the religious leaders. So I didn't want to give you another message about that even though the text brings it out. I do want to talk about the sacrificial giving of this widow. And so the first point is Jesus knows what we give. Verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. So they're in this area where the treasury is located, and we know from history that along one side of the wall, you're going to find 13 offering boxes that were made almost entirely of brass, and at the top of them, they were shaped like shofars or trumpets. And so they had this sort of strange trombone opening, and what happens, and the disciples' And Jesus and all those who went into this area, they they knew what was to happen here, but it says specifically that Jesus was there on the opposite wall of the treasury observing how people were giving their money, not just what they were giving, but how they were giving. This word observe, it means to watch with deep interest and careful observation of all the details, He's not casually looking at people. He's actually intently gazing at what is happening, and he's paying attention to all the details. Is that not a little disturbing? It's like he's taking notes. It's not a casual look from Jesus. But the fact here is that Jesus always sees every detail of our giving. But what did he see that day? Well, he saw a couple things. The first is he saw some people give a lot. Many rich people, it says, were putting in large sums of money. And not only Jesus and the disciples, everybody saw these people that gave a lot of money. Offering boxes were made of brass. Money was coinage. Big offerings caused a massive noise throughout the court. Not the effect I'm looking for. (laughs) And they stretched it out, didn't they? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2. Some scholars agree with this thought. I'm not saying it's for sure. He said, Don't give with the sounding of trumpets. Some people believe that this is what he could have meant. These trumpet-like boxes that they wanted to be seen by other people. Some people gave a lot because they had a lot to give. And this was not wrong. Jesus just was not impressed. And we need to realize that today. Jesus is not impressed if we have a lot to give or we give a lot. That's not what gets him going. And that's not just what he's looking for. It's not wrong. It's not bad. But it's It's not the amount, per se, that he's looking at. The second thing that we we see, and Jesus saw that day, was some people gave a little. Most people in that time were not rich, but everyone, almost everyone, came to the temple to give out of obedience and devotion to God. This widow represents the lowest and the poorest in society, and she definitely gave the smallest amount of money of anybody that came there. The scripture references that she gave two copper coins, two lepta, the the lepton is what this reference would be, and it's essentially worth 164th of a Roman denarius. Now, a Roman denarius was one day's wage, so I did the math just to kind of bring it into 2022. The average salary of a person that lives in Federal Way, which is the city that you're sitting in today, if you didn't know, amen. It's $49,000, that's the average salary. That breaks down into $188 a day. So one 64th of a day's wage today would be $2.93. I actually have that. I don't know how I had it in, in a, some people give me coins and that's, they go into my cup. This is $2.93 right here. This is the offering that she came to give. And it was nothing in comparison to what everyone else gave. So when she gave, it was done. That was it. It was just a clink and a clank. Nobody heard it. Nobody cared. But when other people gave, uh, gave ding, 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 it was like somebody won at Las Vegas. <laughs> she dropped the coins into the treasury without a sound. Nobody nobody cared. Nobody noticed. It says two Two copper coins. I've got a couple here. Two copper coins. Jesus gathered his disciples, and this is a powerful thought here. When she did this, when she took this to the temple treasury, she gave it. Jesus gathered his disciples, and he said, look at that. And the disciples probably said, look at what? And he said, did you see that? And they said, see what? Jesus began to show them that what she did was more important than what anybody else did because it was not the amount that she gave. Jesus does not look at amounts. He looks at percentages. The Bible says she gave all that she had. Another translation says she gave all that she had to live on. And there's another translation that puts it this way. She gave her whole life. She gave her livelihood. She gave the amount of money it would cost to sustain her. She was willing to give all that she had. And the fact is those who, are truly, those who truly love God are not always known by people, but they are certainly known by him. He saw them give a little. Some people give a little because they have a little. And that's just the reality of it. There's a third component here that isn't shared in the text, but I think it's important to bring it up. Some people didn't give it all. During Passover, most people brought a sacrifice in a temple shekel, but what we read about here in the temple treasury, this was an offering. This was not uh, the obligation. This was a free will choice of the heart is, is what this was. And so what we're observing today, what Jesus saw, what he was bringing attention to with his disciples was that she went beyond already by even being where the temple treasury was. In fact, the temple treasury, these 13 boxes, a lot of these boxes were devoted specifically for things that referenced the temple. Like one box was literally where you could give an offering to provide money for the wood to make sure that the sacrifices burned. Now, who gets up in the morning and says, I want to give my money for the wood so sacrifices can burn it just doesn't sound very attractive but that's what one of the 13 boxes was for but let's just face it a lot of people didn't give that day at all and the same is true today a lot of people do not give anything to the lord their hearts aren't stirred or moved in the direction of generosity and that's not to shame any of us today but let's just talk about the reality of this many gave a lot some gave a little But the people that gave nothing aren't even mentioned. The second point is this. Jesus knows not only what we give, but he knows why we give. Look at verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. That's like all of them combined is essentially what it would mean. For they all put in out of their surplus. They could afford to, but she out of her poverty, she couldn't afford to. But in all she owned and all she had to live on. The passage shows not only what people gave, but it reveals why they gave. Three things here some people give with a biblical conviction, that's why they give. That's why she gave. The scripture teaches tithing, giving offerings, and giving alms. That would have been the biblical paradigm for giving. I don't have time to break down tithing, giving offerings, and giving alms, other than to say tithing was the first fruit of our income, and it was a trust to the Lord. He is our source. Our farm is not our source. Our job is not our source. He is our source, so we give our first fruits to God. It was, I trust you as my source offerings were to care for the things that we need to care about. It was to make sure that we fund those things, those priorities of the temple and other things. And then paying alms was to take care of practical needs. For example, those that were begging. In the same temple that we showed a model to, it says that there was a beggar in Acts chapter three at the gate called beautiful. It was one of the gates there in the temple that I showed you. And so Peter and John said, silver and gold I do not have, amen. Some of us ought to preach today. He said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. So a beggar was asking for alms. This was a paradigm. This was a way of thinking. And In a Jewish mindset, we, we take care of people that can't work. There's also scriptures that say that if you beg, but you can work, that actually wasn't to be considered in the same way. It was actually giving alms toward people that could not work. There was a sense of responsibility in the Jewish people. We do that. We take care of people. And so this was their paradigm. The widow's motivation was compelling to Jesus because it wasn't just giving money. It was actually worship to God. That's what giving was really all about. First, she gave all that she had, and this was abnormal. It showed a depth of worship. She's willing to give all that she had. You do not do that unless you are convicted that you trust God with all of your heart and that if you give everything you have to him, he will provide for you. You cannot give everything you have unless you have this biblical conviction. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. So Jesus was impressed by that. He knew the depth of worship that was seen in this event of her giving these two copper coins. Nobody else saw it. Nobody else cared, but Jesus saw exactly what was happening. And the other thing is that this woman was not ashamed. I mean, what's it like to bring an offering like this? What's What's it feel like? If this is all that you have, you have to break free of your shame and go, you know what? This, this may not be a lot to anybody else, but I'm going to give it in faith and in worship to God. It may be all that I have and it may be nothing to anybody else, but if I give it to God, he sees the depth of worship that it truly is. And friend, I think there's a message for us right there. Sometimes we don't feel like we have a lot, but we still need to give what we got. Come on, Isaiah, that rhymed. Made me a rapper today. Giving to God when you feel like you have nothing to give. There's something to be said for that, isn't there? What if that's real worship? What if it's real worship, not just in giving, but when you feel like you don't have time and you stop for someone? When you don't feel like raising your hands in worship, but you do it anyways because he's worthy. What if you stand in a place and in your hands you don't have very much, but you, tr- you pass through Whatever it is you feel, whatever it is you think you have, and you just do it anyways. Friends, I believe from this text, what we're seeing today is that Jesus sees and honors that as real worship. I don't know if I I should give this. It's not very much. It it won't do anything for anybody. Two copper coins, they're not gonna do anything. It's not even gonna pay for one piece of wood to burn in the sacrifice. It didn't matter. Jesus stopped all of his disciples a few days before his crucifixion to give them a lesson about what sacrificial giving and worship really look like. He said, look at that. Look at what? This is the greatest act of worship and giving that you'll see here all day. That's what Jesus said. That's, That's powerful. She had a biblical conviction, not ashamed, and she gave all that she had. She did not know Jesus was watching, but she had to believe that God saw and honored her sacrifice. Several years ago, at our previous church, I became friends with a man who was, uh, who was homeless at that time. He actually lived in a tent one block from our church building. He was a great guy, loved the Lord. Um, and one day he walked up to me and he gave me $200 bills. And he said to me, and I'll never forget it, this is exactly what he said, I want you to give this to someone who needs it the most. In my mind, I thought, did not say, but I thought, I don't know anybody that needs this more than you. And yet this man humbled me and said, I want you to give these $200 bills to the person that needs them the most. I want to tell you what happened to Pastor Ben. <laughs> I thought long and hard and had no answer on where this money was supposed to go, honestly. I didn't know what to do with it. Now, let me just park right there for a second and say, if you give Pastor Ben $200 bills, it's going in an envelope with your name on it, and it's going in the offering box. I just want to say that, amen. Not going to pocket your money. Going back to my story. I didn't know what to do with the money. Now, it took me like two or three weeks to find the right person or the right thing. It was a, a place that we gave it to as a church. I gave it to the church, and then we... We forwarded that money to a specific thing. The stewardship that I felt over $200 bills, I've been in charge of a lot of money in my life, even at a young age. Even when I was 26 years old, I was in charge of stewarding a lot of money at that time. So I've always been responsible for a lot. But this felt like $2 million to me. It felt like $2 million to me. And I remember thinking through, man, where (laughs) where do I give this? They thought, they don't need it as much. They don't need it as much. And then I finally realized it actually wasn't about me curating the need as much as it was having a sense from the Holy Spirit. And that's how I, I was led to do that. And My, my point is, is that this man who gave me that money carried a deep biblical conviction that what he was doing, he was doing unto God. And uh, he used to call me God's son. He kind of had, anyways, was, he, he was really funny about that. He'd say, you're, you're God's son. What does God say? He would, he, he'd always prompt me up, and I'd say, man, I'm nobody. What are you talking about? He's like, no, you hear God better than I do. And he, he was just an awesome guy. But he had a compelling, deep sense of conviction about his worship unto God. He, there's no way. It would have been disrespectful for me to say, hey, I can't take your money. I didn't say that did not come out of my mouth because I realized what he was doing. Biblical conviction. Some people give with a religious motivation. They give because they feel like they have to, not they get to. We need to acknowledge that it's not hard to lose the why behind our spiritual practices, is it? It happens to all of us. You lose the why behind it and and all of a sudden you're just doing something that's a routine um, and it doesn't have the reality attached to it. It's like a tradition that doesn't transform. I mean, you're doing the thing, but you kind of lose the why. Why are we even doing the thing? Why are we lighting candles? Why, are we, why do we get together? Why do we sing? Why do we, you start to lose the why. And when you lose the why behind what you're doing, it's not hard to see how we give up doing anything. We're not going to keep doing that. You're not going to keep going to church. You're not going to keep singing to God. You're not going to keep reading your Bible. You're not going to keep giving unto the Lord. If you lose the why, if the why becomes ambiguous, if it's not deeply rooted in a biblical practice, then all of a sudden it becomes an option to not do it at all because it's just mere routine or religious activity. When we reduce giving down to a religious obligation, we we probably will stop giving or, or at least it's very possible. When we miss the point, we miss the, the potential. The third thing I think is true when we think about why we give. Some people give with a personal agenda. In verse 41, Jesus specifically is observing how. They were giving. I don't know if you saw that in a text It says he was watching how they were giving, not what they were giving, but how they were giving. And there's no doubt he was observing many large sums being put into the offering. And that just, just, just constantly the people wanted to be seen. They were doing it to be seen. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 1, I read a part of it, but listen, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Jesus isn't saying like, hey, don't come up front and put an offering in the box when other people are around. He's not talking about being um, secretive. He's saying, check your motives so that what you're doing in fasting, giving, and prayer, when he talks about practicing righteousness, Matthew 6 goes on to talk about fasting, giving, and prayer. He's saying, when you do these things, check your motives so that you're not doing them so that other people think well of you. Do them because you're devoted to God. Do them because it's worship to God. That goes for all of the things that we consider worship. And he says this, he goes on to say, if you do, if if you practice this in that way, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it, there it is, with trumpets, ching, 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 ching. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by other people, truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. If we give to be honored by people, to be seen by people, to be thought well of or spiritual by other people, if we do that, he's saying that's your reward. Your reward is that other people will think this of you, but you get nothing from God because you didn't do it for God. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's, an inc- that's a crazy rebuke. I, I, you know When you read that, I just have to say this, when you read that, please don't bypass it. Let's not bypass that like, you know, that's not me. That's not me. See, when we do that, when we read the Bible, we bypass it and go, oh, that's not me. Maybe there's something in me that is like that. Maybe there's something in me that, that is bent towards doing that. I don't think the Pharisees and the religious leaders got to where they were because they just woke up in the morning and that's just how they are. I think there's something inside the human heart that wants to be honored by others rather than just give worship to an almighty God. And it affects everything that we do. And so he's talking about keeping your motives in check, humbling yourself, making sure that that's not what's in your heart. He wants us to do these things, but do them for God. Do them before God. That's what matters. Jesus warned not to give to receive from others. Be faithful in the call of loving God and loving others. Now, this doesn't answer all of the questions that we would have about giving. And I, I understand <laughs> that I cannot answer all those today. And maybe you're not asking those questions today. And maybe you're thinking, Pastor Ben, I did not get up this morning and want to talk about giving money. <laughs> and in three and a half years, I think I've not taught on it once. So if you're a guest here and you're like, man, this, what a day to be here. Um, we just happen to be here, but I want to talk to you a little bit for, about the principles of a giver in the remainder of the time that I have. The subject of finances, tithing, stewardship, generosity is extensive throughout the Bible. Okay. There's no way to see it. Uh, you just, you can't see it any other way. 11 of the 39 parables that Jesus taught were about financial stewardship because it's an issue of discipleship period. And it's a test of discipleship. And I'll say this to you today, God cares about your giving because God cares about you. Now, this might be a new concept to you, but let me prove to you that we have thoroughly separated this issue of giving, not just in church, okay? If you think I'm going to take an offering after the sermon, you're wrong. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just not going to do it. It's just, it's a joke, you know. All right. <laughs> do I blow out the candles now? I don't know. All right. All um, right. When I married my wife, Bridget, I was 24, she was 27, she had a 9 and 11-year-old 9, uh, 9 son. Uh, Isaiah is on the front row, you guys know, he's one of our youth pastors. Uh, you've heard some of the story. Um, there's a lot of story I can't tell because I'd be telling on him, you know. Remember the stories I told before he came here, guys? Okay, bring those up. Can't bring those up, okay? <laughs> different chapter, different chapter, same book, different chapter, all right. Um, so, and Bridget and I were in this journey. She had been in it for a long time as a, as a single mom. And so now I'm uh, being a father and figuring that out. One of the things that I'm just t- saying this because it, it so touched my heart. Um, Isaiah, we lived in this condo complex where we were all backed up to this big field area where there was a basketball court and other things in, uh, in Everett. And so the, the kids would go outside and play every day. And there was one kid's birthday. I don't remember which kid or whatever, but there was a kid's birthday, and Isaiah didn't have anything uh, to give him for his birthday. And so he went upstairs in his room, and he took one of his own toys and he wrapped it up, and he gave it away. And I saw him do this a few. Th- I know, oh, so so good. Yeah. <laughs> and he hasn't done that ever since. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> lest you think. Let's pray for him. Um, so no, he. <laughs> but I remember. Uh, I remember seeing that, and I had no contribution to that. So all credit to my wife and the Lord and, and Isaiah. But I just remember kind of coming into this family that we're now forming and observing that. And I just thought, wow, that is amazing. And it touched my heart, you know, because now I'm a father all of a sudden. And I just want to tell you, as a father, something special happens when I see my kids walk in generosity. When I see my kids wanting to give, it touches my heart. I, I can hardly think of a handful of things that do more for me in my heart than when I see my kids move towards other people or move towards the Lord and say, I want to give what I have. Friends, we're living in a culture where it's, it's common to take. It's normal. And children, when they're young, that's what, that's what we all did. I want me, mine. It's, that's normal. That's normal. And we try to disciple them out of that sinful nature. And so to see your kids engage in that, it's powerful. It does something to you. Why is God not the same way? When we think about generosity, I'm sorry if you've been hurt by churches that want your money and preachers that uh, live lavish lives. I mean, whatever. I don't, I don't, I'm not friends with anybody like that, but I know it's out there. I'm sorry if you've you've done that. I just want to tell you something. God wants us to be givers. God wants us to be generous because he's a good father and he cares about who we're becoming more than what we have. And so oftentimes what we do when we think about generosity, we think about giving, we separate the fact that God's our father and he wants us to be generous just because he wants us to be generous. And isn't it interesting when you look at this passage that this woman is giving everything she had to the corrupt temple and all of its practices. And Jesus didn't say anything about that. All he said was, look at what she's doing. This is a profound example of what I want you to be like. The disciples couldn't even see it, and he wanted them to live more like her. He didn't say, look at this profound. Some people will make a huge thing about how the Temple would misuse her money. And that's true. There's some truth to that. I told you that in the beginning. But I think Jesus was also saying she gave everything that she had. And that is a profound example of what it means to love God. Do you agree with that today? God wants us to be generous. He doesn't want us to stay tithers. He wants us to be on the road of generosity where we're willing to take risks and make sacrifices that we've never taken before. That's the kind of person that I, that I want to be. That, that's the kind of, I mean, it, this isn't about, and I don't care about the, it's not just offerings at church. It's a way of life. It's a way of life. That we're the kind of people that when we see something happen in front of us, whether it's the level of need that touches our heart or not, that we're drawn towards it. We want to solve problems, even when we don't have the resources, because we've learned to pull on God. I don't know how to solve that problem, but I know someone that does, and I'm learning to pull on the generous one who gives seed to the sower. And so I think the Lord is, cares about our generosity because he cares about us. There's a couple principles that I'm just gonna shoot at you like a shotgun. Are you ready? Of course you are. Number one, everything belongs to God. He's the creator of all things, therefore all things belong to him. Deuteronomy ten fourteen. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth, and all that is in it, God owns it all. Amen. Number two, we are stewards of all that we have. We get to make a decision based on the fact that God is the owner of all things. We're either having an ownership mindset or a stewardship mindset. An ownership mindset says that we have exclusive rights and control over all of our own property. A stewardship mindset says that we need to manage well what has been entrusted to our care. Our mentality in this regard is our reality. And if we see ourselves as stewards of what God has given to us or allowed us to have, then it will change the way that we live. The third principle is our stewardship reveals our heart. Jesus made it undeniably clear that our financial stewardship is a reflection of our heart. Look at Matthew and chapter 6 and verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Look at this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You wanna disregard all my words, that's fine, but look at what Jesus said. Where your treasure is, that's a revelation of where your heart actually is. This is what you love, what you like, what you care about what you give yourself towards, because money is a test of discipleship. It is an issue of discipleship. Some people will say at times, I don't know if it's FPU, Financial Peace University, I don't remember where I got this from, so I can't credit them. But they say, if you want to take a look at what you care about, look at your checkbook and your calendar. The two greatest things that you have that reveal your heart are what you do with your money and what you do with your time. And I think that's pretty fair because Jesus said in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. They will either hate the one or they love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. You just can't. It is isn't possible. Now, I just want to show you this. Uh, This is a hundred dollar bill. Amen. Now, what if I told you today, I'm coming at you. Here I come. What if I told you today that um, I was going to give this to somebody? I was like, sister, can I get a witness over here? She's like, amen. Now you're amen in my sermon. Okay. Man, this is the best sermon I've ever heard before. Wow. Does your church do this every week? All right. People that are online are coming down now. They're on their way. I'm going to service number two. Um, I'm not giving this to you. But if I told you, I had to borrow it. You just not get it close to the light. Um, if I told you that I was going to give this to somebody today, now some of you are like, some, I have family members where they're like this, they're like, I don't care, I'm going home, I'm, I'm fine. You know, they don't want anybody, anything from anybody. A couple of you are like that. The rest of you, something leaps in your heart. When you legitimately think, when I pull this out, there's something attached to this. But this is just a piece of paper made by the U.S. government. It's just a piece of paper. Everybody say paper. That's all it is. Okay, so... But if I told you today, I'm going to give this really old screwdriver to somebody. Now, there's a few guys that are like, hey, I need a flathead. Is that that what that is? Wouldn't mind that. Wouldn't mind that at all. Besides those guys (laughs) who lost a screwdriver. um, uh, If I said, I'm going to give this away, your heart does not do the same thing. But the reality is this is actually the same as this. It's a tool. For the steward. For the steward, this is a tool. That's all that it is. And the fact is, we see it differently than that, and that's the problem. We live in a culture that wants to make us think this is not a tool, actually becomes an idol. This is a tool, we all get that, we understand that, but what God wants to do in our understanding of giving is see money as a way in which we can worship God because we're stewards of everything that he's entrusted to us. And if we see our life that way, not just our money that way, but our time, our talent and our treasure. If we see our life before God in that way, trust me. You're a whole lot freer when you th- when you think about life that way. Money's a tool. It's pieces of paper. Numbers in our bank account. We separate people because of it. We think well of others. We think of some as successful and some as less successful. Jesus does not look at amounts. He looks at percentages. She gave all that she had. And so this is the people that we want to be as stewards. I don't have time for the rest, but let me just go ahead and shoot these last thoughts of the heart. The heart of a giver is this. We give with a clean heart. As we give, our motive is to love God and others practically. That's our heart. Number two, we give with a cheerful heart. Our desire is not what we get out of it, but it's that we're excited to be a part or participate in the ability to help provide. Number three is we give with a free heart. We're not trying to receive anything from anybody. We don't want anything in return. Number four, we give with an expectant heart. We know the fact of what Scripture teaches is that when we give and as we take care of other things and other people and what the Bible teaches, that God is always our source and supply, He takes care of us. We can know that. Number five is we give with a generous heart. As we give, we seek to do more than the bare minimum. That's easy. And number six, we give with a sacrificial heart. As we give, we allow God to provoke us beyond our comfort zone and normal generosity. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you want that. <laughs> but I do. And I want to encourage you toward that. I want to give with a, with a generous heart, a sacrificial heart. And I'm not there. But I want to be there. I want us to be the kind of people that we're drawn towards the needs. We don't turn away. We're drawn towards offerings, we don't turn away. Our ears perk up, they don't go, I can't. They say, how can I? I would like to. And the cool thing is is that even if you can't afford to, doesn't matter. I started challenging people years ago and I said, okay, say this, you can't afford to give, you can't afford to do a lot of stuff. Why don't you start asking God to give you seed that you can sow with? And here's what I know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that he gives seed to the sower. If somebody went out to a field, you gave them a whole bag of seed and they sowed throughout that field, it was all plowed and ready. And then they came back and they said, hey, I sowed throughout that field. I need some more seed. You'd say, sure, sure, go to the next field. Go to the next field. Because they did well with what you gave them. But if somebody took your bag of seed and they went to their house and they put it in their house and they said, hey, um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't sow any seed, but I sure would like some more. You're not going to give to that person. Do you understand? He provides seed to the sower, the person that's sowing. So you might say today, I don't have anything. I don't have much to give. Watch this. If your intention is not just to get something, but you want to give something, start asking the Lord. I know when my kids ask me for more so that they can get another game or another thing, not that they do, amen, not that they do. Not that they do when they're young adults, not that they do, amen, not that they do. But I know that when they want, to give, they want to receive to give away, my heart, my heart, is more inclined towards that because it's what they're becoming. I, I love that. I love to hear the desires of my children. And I just think God's the same way. <laughs> Times 100,000. He longs for us to be, have this huge heart that we can't fund. But guess who can? The Lord. So I'll close by saying this. Did you notice in this passage, one of the interesting things, and theologians actually reference this, that when Jesus pointed out what everyone didn't see, he tells them as an explanation, she gave all that she had to live on. And some translations say she gave her whole life. And I had this thought come to me. It's why I called this message, which you forgot the title of it, and that's fine. I don't need you to remember it. But the call to give all. I've realized something in my life. If you've already given your life over to Jesus, anything else that he asks you to do is nothing. You've already said yes over here, which makes it easy to say yes to anything else that the Bible teaches or the Holy Spirit asks. The call is to give all, not some of what you have. It's to give your whole life. And when that happens, everything else is secondary. It's how can I faithfully serve the one that I've committed my life to? She gave all of her life. Would you stand? I want to pray for you today. And I'm not giving out any $100 bills, and I'm not giving out any screwdrivers. You can go to your local bank and your local Home Depot for both, guys. Amen? All right. <laughs> First, I want to pray for anybody here today, and you're saying, Pastor Ben, I haven't given my whole life to Jesus. Let's put money on the shelf for a second. Giving on the shelf. Just move that aside. I haven't given my whole life to Jesus. My heart. This is the most important, most valuable thing you have, your life. And worshipers give their life back to the one that gave them life. That's what worship is. It's not just to sing or give some money. It's to give your life to the one that gave you life. So if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus and you don't know where you're gonna be when you die, you don't know if you're forgiven of your sins, you don't know you're standing with God, you can know that today, amen? You can know that for sure. You don't have to be uncertain. And so the call of Christ is this, that he gave his life so that you and I could have life. He died on a cross in our place so that we could be forgiven and in right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so if you're here and you don't know if you're forgiven, you don't know where you're going and you don't know what that means or looks like for you, I want to give you an opportunity to give your whole life to Jesus. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Come up after the service. Come on down to the front. I'm going to close and pray and conclude. But I'm asking you to come forward and pray with one of us. We see it happen regularly, and you're not here by an accident. You're not here by surprise. This is what the Lord wants for us. He wants our whole life, and that's when we start living. A lot of us are alive, but we're not living, not until we have Jesus. So it's time to start living, and you could do that by giving your whole life to him. So come on up after the service. Let me pray for everyone else. Father, thank you for who you are and for what you have done. And our intention as we talk about this simply is to obey you in whatever you call us to do, whether it's with money or it's with time or it's with whatever talents or gifts that we have, everything that we have is yours. And so, Lord, freshly, we just tell you today and as we gather as a church, we belong to you. Just as we talked to Amelia and we say, you belong to Jesus, we say over our lives, we belong to Jesus. Your Lord and Savior. You're the one that we follow. You're the most important one here. And so we look to you and we declare we're following you. So touch our hearts in whatever way that we need them to be touched, convicted, encouraged, strengthened by your grace. Teach us the way of generosity so that we are partnering with you and not just doing our own thing. And we yield to your plan and to your purposes in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.